0: You are listening to the nixon now podcast i'm jonathan McRoydis. this is brought to you by the nixon foundation we're broadcasting from the richard nixon presidential library in yorba linda california you can follow us on twitter at nixon foundation or at nixonfoundation.org this summer marks the 50th anniversary of the pronouncement of the nixon doctrine one day after the apollo 11 splashdown in the south pacific president nixon articulated a foreign policy doctrine in an informal press conference on the island of guam on this edition of the nixon now podcast we've assembled a panel of experts to talk the doctrine its evolution, the context of the Vietnam War, as well as its global application. We're joined by Michael Cotton, Assistant Professor of History at Temple College in Texas, Gregory Daddis, Associate Professor of History and Director of Chapman University's War and Society Program, and Luke Nichter, Professor of History at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. We'll be joined later by Roham Alvandi, Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and Visiting Associate Professor of History at Columbia University. Thank you all, gentlemen, for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.
0: Just to start off, um, I'd like to go a little bit around the horn. Uh, Luke, to start off with you, what does a presidential foreign policy doctrine mean to you?
2: Oh, well, uh, well, first of all, not every president has one. Um, it tends to be presidents who who focused, or what we remember as primarily foreign policy presidents, so certainly, you know, during Nixon's lifetime, uh, we can talk about a a Truman Doctrine, and Nixon himself talks about a Truman Doctrine on the tapes, uh, a Kennedy Doctrine, um, and if we're here to talk about a Nixon Doctrine. It's really a kind of way that we remember. It's a way that a president shaped and crafted policy. Uh, sometimes the ideas work, and sometimes they don't. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's a rare thing that we remember a president for having it, um, it, it tends to be a president who had unusually original thought about policy, about the place of the United States and the world at that time. Uh, so it's kind of an organizing principle for the foreign policies that, that emanate from the administration.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I,
1: I, I would agree with uh, with Luke on this. I, I think in, in one sense, uh, if we think about... Uh, presidential doctrine um, as supportive of a, a larger national grand strategy, then in one sense, if that grand strategy is a framework for how the nation is moving forward, then to, uh, to kind of quote George Kennan, then the, the, the doctrine and the, based on foreign policy objectives is is really an indication, I think, of direction. Maybe not necessarily a, um, uh, an announcement of a final destination, but I think it's a, a president's desire to move the country from a foreign policy perspective in a certain direction. And I think you see this certainly, um, as Luke pointed out, with the, uh, the Truman Doctrine and and um, clearly the Nixon Doctrine is hoping to move uh, the United States in, um, in a different era of the Cold War in a different direction.
0: Michael, uh, your thoughts on um, what is a foreign policy doctrine?
3: Well, I, I agree um, with the idea that it, that it is Um, a a direction for foreign policy, an overarching uh, uh, framework by which foreign policy will be operated under. It's interesting that um, certain presidents, of course, as as Dr. Mitchell had mentioned, um, emphasize it more than others. And the interesting thing you can see is how uh, situations around the world and situations within the nation uh, change the shape of that and, and the perspectives. And especially looking at uh, the Truman Doctrine and how things change between the Truman Doctrine uh, and the Nixon Doctrine, and how the um, perspective of the foreign policy approaches changed change over time. Especially if you look take a long look at the United States from from the foundings uh, up through the Nixon Doctrine, you can see a great change in the, in the role uh, and the the uh, the given role uh, of the United States. Uh, and in how they construct foreign policy,
0: the Nixon Doctrine comes at the peak of U.S. foreign policy in the 1960s. Uh, previously, uh, Kennedy and Johnson uh, presided over the Vietnam Wars. Uh, Vietnam War. What was the what was the American government's philosophy in the 1960s, uh, up until this point in 1969, about fighting Vietnam and the Cold War in general? I'll start with you, Luke.
2: Well, I think if you if you look at the the, in terms of the decade, you look at the beginning of the decade uh, as it was laid out um, in, in President Kennedy's uh, inaugural address in January of 1961. You know, I, I see a, which did a number of things uh, to the foreign policy of the United States. Um, I see it in a way, one of the elements of it as being sort of an extension or expansion of the Truman Doctrine. So, if the Truman Doctrine said, you know, the United States will be there, you know, at the side of those facing communist aggression, then I think what the Ken- Kennedy Doctrine did was was really emphasize that sort of global policeman, you know, responsibility, but really underscored it even more by saying, you know, we'll go anywhere, sort of anytime, you know, anywhere we're needed, you know, to face this, to, to help those, you know, who are being threatened by co- this communist aggression. So it was really kind of stating uh, that the United States had these truly global, you know, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week responsibilities. Uh, and so I think that that was um, what, what then Johnson inherited, and I think that's what Nixon ultimately decided that he had to reckon with. And sort of where do we – if that's what I have to work with, you know, sort of where do we go from here?
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I I think you certainly do see an evolution. I think by the time uh, Johnson becomes president um, after Kennedy's assassination in 1963, that um, within the span of about 12 to 18 months, that um, for a whole host of reasons, I think that that Vietnam becomes a, a central locus for the larger global fight against communism. And, and I think there's plenty of reasons for that, um, whether it's tied to American credibility or um, a, a true belief that um, there's a larger zero-sum game um, at play here with the global Cold War. Um, but I think, importantly, as, as it does become a central point in the larger um, focus of, of global containment, that, that Vietnam arguably um, becomes... Um, a, a position that is far out of proportion to its worth um, in relation to the larger American foreign policy. And, and in one sense, I think you can make an argument that the Nixon Doctrine is trying to to rebalance that um, proportion and, and ensure that the United States doesn't get um, locked down into these local conflicts um, in such a way that it, it it pulls American foreign policy away from larger goals and objectives. So I think what you see throughout the 1960s is is this arc where you know um, is the Eisenhower administration kind of turns uh, Vietnam over to, to Kennedy and then through Johnson and ultimately to Nixon. Um, you see this uh, level of importance for Vietnam rise and then ultimately fall um, in terms of its
0: large relation to American foreign policy. Michael, you wrote your thesis on the Nixon doctrine. Could you give us a little background about how this... Um, informal conversation with newsmen in Guam came about. Uh, in the president's public papers, it's called an informal conversation, but did the doctrine evolve um, in the early administration? How did it evolve? Did he already have this doctrine lined out when he comes into office in January of
3: 1969? Um, President Nixon had, had written some papers um, prior to coming into office uh, where he talked about Vietnam and he talked about foreign policy, um, he he mentions in, in, on the tapes the, the conversation that he had not told Dr. Kissinger that he was going to release all this uh, before before he did so, and so so the way that it came out into this this informal setting, um, the policy itself it did kind of the the press did run with it, and one of the one of the the topics of the conversation is is. How much was it supposed to run, and, and how much did it did it have to get did he, did he have to get pulled along to match what was out there? But I think I think the the, the evidence shows that he had worked on a framework um, that eventually became you know, was referred to as the Guam Doctrine, then eventually became known as the Nixon Doctrine. But I believe the framework um, for it was there. I think I think that he recognized that the uh, the stance that the United States will fight everywhere, um, it, you know, any, in, any, at any cost, any expense, any burden um, was was not uh, entirely practical, and that the the concept of the the domino theory was something that had to be re reanalyzed. And I and I think it's interesting that that the the approach with the Nixon doctrine was that it was going to put more of an influence on the nations themselves, that yes, the United States was still going to um, provide the the umbrella uh, and would be there to support, but would not carry 100% of the burden in in every situation uh, around the world.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I agree with Jeffrey Kimball's assi- uh, assertion that, that it's really the press that blows this speech way out of proportion. at Guam. I, I I I agree more with Michael on this. I think there are there's a, a framework already established um, that that both Nixon and Kissinger are thinking along these lines prior to the the meeting. At Guam. and I i I'd be I think I'd be very careful about just kind of placing blame on the press for blowing this out of proportion. But I think this brings up an, a, a really interesting larger question, not just for the Nixon presidency, but for all presidencies, is why do they have to have a doctrine? Um, we we seem to conflate this word presidential doctrine with grand strategy or national security strategy or just American foreign policy writ large. And and it seems we've gotten to the point now that if you're a president of the United States and you don't have a doctrine with your name attached to it, somehow you don't have a foreign policy, um, which I, I find fairly interesting.
0: Luke, do you do you agree that the uh, president needs a foreign policy doctrine?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, that's a tough one because, um, you know, I mean, not. I, I mean, uh, foreign policy is is obviously not going to be uh, a sort of natural skill set of every single leader. You know that we that we have any more than domestic policy is or, or any other, you know, particular type of expertise. Um, you know, So so I and I think, you know, politics is also cyclical. Um, you know, I think, so I think the, a skill set of a president, say, in an area of foreign policy, um, you know, part of what the Nixon doctrine shows us is that that foreign policy is cyclical. So, you know, if, if after a period of, of very, you know, Perhaps you know over involvement in the world. There's a a necessary recalibration that takes place during the next 10 years. You know that itself suggests a a kind of cycle of um, you know focusing more outward and then more inward. Uh, I think another interesting point too is um, you know Jeffrey Kimball, who was mentioned, um, who's a, a good Vietnam scholar. Uh, was really sort of the leader of those who, I, in some, you know, in one case, wrote an article in 1996 that questioned whether it, the Nixon doctrine even existed. And, um, you know, when the article came out, there were basically no Nixon tapes available. And then um, a, a couple of years ago, I, I pointed out to him, I said, well, you know, you can't deny that that you know, when you, when you do a search of the Nixon tapes, the actual phrase Nixon doctrine shows up 60 times. Um, and, it's, and the taping didn't begin until '71. I mean, almost two years after the Nixon Doctrine is announced in Guam. Um, and so, presumably, in those first two years of the presidency, if we had tapes '69, '70, there'd be even more mentions than just two years after the fact. So, you know, confronted with that, you know, he he said something. He sort of conceded. Well, you know, tapes weren't available, and it's really going to be the next generation of people who explore this more fully. So I think even he has conceded that he, you know, that, that, that the interpretation we're talking about now are sort of a natural evolution of this 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 conversation.
0: Greg, let me bring you in here. What was the situation like in um, in Vietnam at the when the Nixon Doctrine was announced?
1: I think, for all practical purposes, uh, a stalemate on all sides, and a and a realization that. Uh, the 1968 Tet Offensive, which um, from Hanoi's perspective um, was aspirational in the sense that it would um, hopefully achieve uh, through a general offensive throughout South Vietnam, a general uprising among the South Vietnamese. And, uh, and that would demonstrate to not just uh, those in Southeast Asia, but really around the world that this was a true uh, revolution against outsiders, and uh, all Vietnamese were um, committed to independence, and uh, um, under Hanoi's leadership. And and when those aspirations fail, um, and uh, and Nixon takes over um, in early 1969, I think there's still a a realization that. Um, Uh, that the the stalemate is simply continuing that, um, you know, this whole idea that, that uh, Tet was a military victory for the United States and and South Vietnamese allies and a, uh, a political defeat for them. I I think um, I've I've got some issues with that um, uh, articulation of of the way it happened, but I think importantly here, um, there's just a sense that, that, um, as Nixon says himself in his memoirs, that total military victory was, was no longer possible. And he's um, speaking about that in his memoirs as he's entering office. So I think there's an understanding that um, from the American standpoint, that the, the overarching political objectives in South Vietnam have got to change because the military is not going to be able to, um, to present those political objectives to um, the incoming administration.
0: When Nixon announces the doctrine, he this is um, he, he travels to the South Pacific to watch the splashdown of Apollo. Uh, then he um, you know gives the he gives the remarks in Guam, and then he ventures out for a trip to um, to Southeast Asia. Was, Greg, what do you think the reason was for the time and place of this right before a Southeast Asian trip? I think,
1: in part, to um, to send a, a fairly clear message to the Saigon regime that that, um, that the American approach to to Vietnam was was evolving, and uh, you know, part of the I think the issue of the Nixon Doctrine, when looked through the lens of those who are um, running the government in Saigon, is that um, that they're they're not part of the discussion early on. Um, so what Michael mentioned earlier about this being a long-term conversation within um, at least Nixon's head, if not um, between Nixon and Kissinger, before the announcements made in Guam, that the South Vietnamese are not fully a part of that conversation. So in one sense, uh, from a, the local Vietnamese perspective, it's an opportunity, I think, for Nixon to um, um, to discuss with, too, that, that American um, the American approach in South Vietnam is changing.
0: Luke, there is... This happens at the Apollo uh, splashdown. In an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with James uh, Donovan, who recently wrote a book about Apollo, uh, he said that um, the space race ended uh, with the moon landing. Um, some have said that the uh, the trip uh, to Southeast Asia following the Apollo, Apollo mission was a, a mission of goodwill to you sort of, uh, you know, bask in the triumph of Apollo, but also... Um, also, uh, deal with um, you know deal with the situation uh, at hand uh, in in Vietnam. Do you, do you do you subscribe to this to this theory?
2: Well, I, I am. I think what we're seeing with the Nixon Doctrine is is you know it has been applied because it was announced you know after the splashdown, and it was announced you know on the way to a Southeast Asian you know meet, head of state meeting. I think it's been Nixon Doctrine is what we see has been primarily interpreted. You look at the secondary literature, and the work of scholars primarily as relating to those subjects, especially relating primarily to Vietnam. And the the thing that struck me, you know, on the tapes, and even looking at Nixon's writings in '68 uh, before winning, um, uh, before winning in the, that fall, is that a lot of the ideas had had been in place for a while. You know, even going back to um, the Foreign Affairs article, uh, Asia after Vietnam in 1967. Um, you know, everyone again focuses on well, what kind of clues do we look for about Vietnam or about a potential new relationship with the PRC? And in that focus, you kind of lose sight of the fact that I think Nixon intended. You know, not necessarily these the ideas we're talking about prior to the labels that were created, the Guam Doctrine or the Nixon Doctrine, but that the ideas were were much broader. And I, I don't know that they were meant to apply to all parts of the world because I, you know, certainly the, the Nixon tapes suggest that Nixon and Kissinger, who centralized so much of foreign policy-making process, um, I, I don't think they they spent as much time on all parts of the world equally. But certainly that the ideas we're talking about. You know, um, so my earlier book on uh, Europe—they're not calling it, you know, the Nixon Doctrine yet. But in his summits in Europe, his his first overseas summit tour, a month after he becomes president, in late February and early March, you know, those are the ideas of the Nixon Doctrine. Uh, And you can look at his preparation for writing his key his keynote NATO speech in April, and looking at the drafts, and a lot of the ideas, not yet called the Nixon Doctrine, are effectively just that. And similarly on the tapes, you can look at policy with regard to, you know, the Middle East and Roham's book. You can look at other parts of the world, and you can see that I think the application of the ideas we're talking about was meant to be broader than just, say, space or just meant to be Vietnam.
0: Greg, um, Nixon, in the Guam remarks, discusses uh, U.S. withdrawal uh, as well as the security and future of U.S. involvement in Asia. seems mm-hmm. somewhat of a paradox. You're talking about withdrawal, but you're also talking about yeah. engagement. What do you think he's envisioning?
1: And, and I think that's the, the problem with all of this is, is that balance. And, and, you know, I think to, to piggyback off what Luke said, I, I think what you've seen in, in much of the literature is kind of this uh, conflation where the Nixon Doctrine really what it means is Vietnamization and I think Nick uh, Luke is correct that, that I think that's a, a, a perhaps faulty way to look at this that, um, that Vietnam is part of a much larger whole. And in one sense, I, I think the, the doctrine um, perhaps is asking a, a more fundamental question, which is who is responsible for global response uh, for global security and how? that if there's this balance between the superpowers and local, Um, local entities that um, we have to figure out this question of of who um, is responsible for just that global security. And I think Vietnamization, um, at least on the ground, um, is is challenging for those that are trying to implement it. You're trying to um, leave something that's credible behind at the same time that um, you're withdrawing US forces, which according to Kissinger, are one of your main leverage points from a negotiating standpoint. Um, and um, you know, my sense, and at least from uh, a military strategy standpoint inside South Vietnam, is that these competing imperatives of withdrawing at the same time that you're trying to um, engage in negotiations and diplomacy, Um, at the same time that you're trying to help um, pacify the countryside and and stabilize not just the the South Vietnamese armed forces, but its government, that that to balance all of those things is is just outside the capacity and the capabilities of the military command inside South
0: Vietnam. Rohan, let me bring you in here. What do you think Nixon and Kissinger's uh, philosophy is uh, in terms of who is responsible for um, global security, as well as their own, um, these these individual countries, or group of countries, regional uh, security? Uh,
4: well, I think essentially what they're trying to do is resolve a fundamental dilemma, which is how do you assert global leadership with limited means? So it's a question of means and ends. And I think for Nixon and Kissinger coming into office, uh, it's very clear, I think, from the early days that they have made a decision to try to focus uh, the diminishing political capital that they have because of Vietnam uh, on the question of detente, uh, on basically on superpower relations, um, what would become the rapprochement with China uh, and uh, with the Soviet Union. But in order to do that, Um, they need to find a way of extricating the United States from what they considered uh, areas of the world where the Cold War would not be won or lost. Um, And so I think that is essentially what what the Nixon doctrine was. Uh, And you have a president who has a great deal of foreign policy experience and has established relationships with a lot of these uh leaders in various regions particularly anti-communist um uh, right-wing leaders uh and so it was really a quite you know a logical extension of that strategy that um they would slowly begin to look for uh regional partners in various places including of course uh the shah of iran Mohammad Reza pahlavi um nixon had nixon had actually visited iran in 1967, when he was out of office and he was doing the sort of global tour before his run for the presidency. And uh, if you look at the uh, notes that he made of those meetings, that uh, meeting with Deshaun in spring of uh, 1967, you can see that all of these ideas about the Nixon doctrine are very clearly enunciated there in their conversation. Um, he is, you know, clearly looking for a regional uh, ally who uh, sees the world in the same way, who shares the same concerns about the uh, uh, diminishing role of the United States, um, uh, and who could potentially uh, fill that uh, role in the Persian Gulf. But but the issue, once they come into office, uh, that takes quite a long time to fall into place. Uh, I mean, the Shah is lobbying. Nixon and Kissinger for that role for almost two years uh, before uh, uh, Washington agrees uh, to essentially give the Shah a blank check um, during uh, Nixon and Kissinger's visit to Tehran in uh, May of 1972 on the tail end of their uh, visit to Moscow uh, for the summit meeting with Brezhnev. So it's it's the ideas I think are there. I would agree. The ideas are there before... Nixon comes into office, but the actual application of these ideas takes uh, some time.
0: Michael, do you would you say that um, would you agree that um, the Nixon administration was actively seeking um, global global partners in in in, uh, in practice of the Nixon doctrine?
3: Well, I, I can I can talk about what um, what I, I heard on the tapes. Processing the tapes is. is as, as part of my thesis, and it shows. Uh, of course, the tapes start you know, two years later, but what you see in the tapes is that the president is having numerous conversations with, with various world leaders, uh, explaining what the Nixon Doctrine is. That that it's not the United States withdrawing from the world, but that it is that it is reframing the circumstances in which we will continue to remain um, as part of the world as a whole. And you can see that 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 this this shift is is large enough that it that it has foreign heads of state asking questions and it really is a a pretty large shift um and so this this the president spends a great deal of time talking with uh heads of state um explaining um, the importance of the United States remaining in certain areas uh he makes reference to of course um the Nixon doctrine, the application of that. And and I would say, going back to the other idea uh, about how it was applied, um, I I think the tapes show that it was not a one-size-fits-all approach and that it would, um, that even though it was an overall global strategy, the application of that strategy would vary from region to region. Uh, And in the tapes, there's conversations where the president talks about how it would be applied in, say, Southeast Asia, how it would be applied in uh, Central America and South America, how it would be applied in Europe, and these conversations are not uh, a one-size-fits-all approach. And but a great deal of time is spent um, explaining how, yes, it is a change in the role for the United States, but it is not the United States withdrawing from uh, the world. But but you can see with the tapes that it is certainly a a point of uh, Concern and discussion with with the various heads of state.
0: Luke, do you have any thoughts on the Nixon Doctrine's application?
2: Oh, I I, I mean, Michael is really the uh, even more so than me. I mean, um, you know, Michael when he um, was one of my uh, graduate students and and you know searching for a, a thesis topic, I said, you know, solve the problem of this scholarly disagreement uh, with regard to the Nixon Doctrine and. And so we both kind of went through this and, and learned, you know, at, at the same time. I mean, I, I knew there was a, a number of uh, mentions of the Nixon Doctrine on the tapes. And so, you know, what, what I really learned also as Michael went through the the motions uh, was, uh, you know, there was something like two dozen substantive conversations dealing with, you know, most parts of the world and, and how it was to be applied um, and so it was clear to me from, from these uh, tapes that Michael transcribed originally in, or in the appendix of his thesis that uh, this, this uh, I think, while the, the, the sort of the general tone, the, the general ideas of the doctrine are, are to be applied universally, um, I think how that actually happens in reality in different parts of the world was very, very different. Uh, and so i you know i, I think uh, it, it was both again kind of broad vision but also it, to be implemented specifically in very different ways and so i, I think uh, and this and what 's interesting about the tapes is a lot of this doesn 't necessarily show up on kind of traditional paper paper memoranda of the administration uh, but it 's really on the fluid conversation of the Nixon tapes where nixon 's going from this part of the world to that part of the world to this part of the world and showing how in his mind, at least, you know, the ideas are connected from one part to another.
0: Greg, you have, do you have any thoughts on
1: that? Yeah. I, just from an application standpoint, I, I think what's important here is that this is not just about superpower relations, but I think perhaps more importantly, how superpowers relate to much weaker allies. And so Nixon himself says that, that part of this, 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 Policy approach is is that the United States is going to assist but not dictate. And and I think that really raises a dilemma for American foreign policymakers, one that I would argue we're still dealing with today is is it raises a whole host of questions. How do you define aid for themselves if you're not going to dictate? Or what happens when a weaker ally has their own visions and and aspirations? We clearly saw this much earlier in the um, in the uh, Kennedy administration, with uh, with with ZM during the early 1960s, um, what happens when your ally is not as pliable as you want them to be? And 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 when that happens, does that lead to a more coercive foreign policy in general? And so I I think that's a a key issue here in terms of application. I think Lucas is absolutely correct that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but it really brings up a problem for American policymakers of of trying to assist but not dictate in a way that um, doesn't lead to an overbearing foreign policy, but also one that allows you to have some influence on the global stage in numerous and very diverse um,
0: regional um, areas, if not conflicts. Uh, Roham, you your case study with Iran um, sheds light on the pliability uh, of allies um, in, in terms of the shock. Could you, t- could you touch upon that?
4: Well, I think the you have to remember that Nixon was vice president in the Eisenhower administration, which had uh, supported and uh, played a key role in the coup in Iran in 1953. Uh, that had overthrown the Mossadegh government and had sort of restored the Shah to power as a, uh, as a royal dictatorship rather than as a constitutional monarchy. So the relationship between Nixon and the Shah was uh, a very long-standing one. And I think coming into office, his view of the Shah was very much still based on, you know, those earlier memories of a rather uh, young uh, weak inexperienced uh, monarch but of course he you know in the subsequent decades the shah had evolved into a much stronger much more autonomous much more independent character so i think the application of the nixon doctrine in the persian gulf and in the case of iran really had to, was a process of convincing the Shah trying to convince Nixon and Kissinger that he was really up to the job, that he could actually assume the mantle of responsibility for preserving uh, the status quo in the Persian Gulf, preventing the Soviet Union or any of its uh, uh, communist allies from uh, gaining power in the region, and uh, that took a while. I mean, that wasn't there was resistance to that idea within. Uh, The bureaucracy in Washington, um, um, pretty much everyone other than Nixon and Kissinger themselves were quite skeptical of the idea. So it took quite a long time, and uh, it was really on a a series of key issues where the Shah was able to sway them. Uh, One was the uh, insurgency in uh, northern Iraq uh, by the Kurdish forces against the government in Baghdad. Uh, the Shah was able in 1972 to convince Nixon and Kissinger to support, covertly support the insurgency, despite opposition from within the NSC staff, the CIA, the uh, Department of Defense. I mean, um, so that really showed a, a kind of that was the Nixon doctrine in action. Um, that was an application of uh, uh, indirect U.S. power. um but of course the net result was that, you know, uh in in many ways the Shah was using that newfound influence, uh, was using his leverage to bend uh, American policy according to Iranian interests, not necessarily American interests, um, which created a great deal of disquiet in Washington, um this whole Kurdish issue became uh, really controversial with the uh, uh, Pike report and the hearings in Congress later on in the 70s. Um, so you can see, there were, I mean, there were a number of cases, uh, in, including Iran, where uh, these smaller allies, weaker allies, um, with their own regional interests, uh, were able to present to Nixon and Kissinger their problems in Cold War terms, uh, and in that way, uh, recruit uh, the United States uh, to their side of whatever regional conflict they were um, involved with, even if that conflict really wasn't fundamentally a Cold War conflict.
0: Greg, do you see any other examples of this?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think... uh... Two in in South Vietnam clearly is is not a passive uh, actor who who doesn't have any agency because he's a a subordinate in the relationship with the United States. I think throughout um, the American experience in Vietnam, it's probably one of the key themes is this frustration with local leaders who are um, who have their own ideas and um, and and can influence uh, American policy making by. Pulling the right levers, whether it's um, um, you know presenting some possibilities of, of negotiating with the communists, or um, ensuring that the South Vietnamese armed forces uh, operate in a certain way um, outside of American influence, or ensuring that the the right political appointees are in key positions, um, whether it's in out in the provinces or in Saigon itself. Um, so to me, I think one of the most understudied aspects of the American experience in Vietnam is, is the South Vietnamese political scene. Um, and I think we have clearly a lot more work to do, especially in Vietnamese sources, um, to get a sense of, of, of how, um, somebody like Tu is, is reacting to a major announcement like the Nixon doctrine, um, and trying to navigate his own way through, um, how the future is going to unfold, um, with or without American assistance. And I, I don't think that that's a unique, um, experience in South Vietnam. I, I think you, you see that through all, uh, through many of the, uh, the, the global regional relationships throughout this time
0: period. Luke, do you have any additional thoughts on that? I mean, there's other parts of the world, Pakistan, uh, Europe. Is there any, do you have any additional thoughts on that?
2: Well, I, I think that the of the ones you mentioned there, the the one um the part of the world that, that I've looked at the most is, is probably Europe. And I, I think um you know the way these ideas applied to Europe certainly was, you know, Nixon coming to, to office and, and really asking just a lot of questions and I I'm not sure he knew all the answers to those questions. You know, I think he looked at things like uh, you know, uh, how many troops is the right number to have stationed in in Germany? Um, you know, because with Nixon believing firmly that kind of the most intense uh, uh, part of the Cold War was was now ending, and and you know he himself says, you know, my presidency is sort of the beginning of the the you know the, the end of the post-war era. So, how many troops do we still need in Germany? uh you know how much should we be spending what is the the real nature of the the ongoing uh communist threat in western europe and so i think he asked he's asking a lot of questions and and uh and in re- sort of reassessing and and thinking about uh, this recalibration that that takes place and i think that's also tied to uh other policies like Bretton woods um you know the the us had been sort of the fulcrum of the international monetary system since 1944 uh and i think he ultimately concluded that the united states had uh, had a, a, a you know a legitimate right you know not to, to bear that burden you know indefinitely e- even while still providing some degree of leadership on um, in the policy areas and the question is what what's what's that leadership supposed to look like so i think in in a place like europe it was uh, it was a military policy it was it, it in, that uh, was involved in political action it was in uh, an economic and a monetary policy so I think the, the ideas behind the the doctrine in a, in a place like Europe were, were applied in a in a sort of very broad broad sense.
0: Luke, how does, um, you know, there's a recalibration of foreign policy. There is a uh, there is the finding of regional partners, but there's also there's also the big powers, Russia and China. Um, how, what does the what is symmetry with the big powers, Russia and China, uh, come into place with this, uh, with, with the Nixon Doctrine?
2: Well I think Nixon ultimately believed that that uh, the era in which he was president would would present new opportunities. You know, he and the question was how do you seize that opportunity? Uh, you know, during the the final months of the Johnson administration, I think it was a shock to the world to to see the Soviet uh, uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and I think while a lot of people uh, and you look at the western response, you know, the NATO response and it's it's almost nothing. It's sort of embarrassing. I think well, while most most leaders in the West were asking questions like, yeah, you know, where will the Soviets strike next, and and you know, what's the next Czechoslovakia, Nixon was thinking differently. According to his private writings, he was saying things like, actually, I think now the Soviets will return to a period of responsibility um, that they'll they'll want to sort of make amends, you know, that they they realize they'd gone too far. So I think the the most important thing I take away is. No matter the part of the, the the world we're talking about, I think Nixon believed he was becoming president at a time when when there would be new opportunities that had not presented themselves in earlier periods, and so I think he was sort of matching up the the the, the language of the Nixon Doctrine with the best way to take advantage uh, of these uh, opportunities, and I think also you know you part of the Nixon Doctrine was to at least give nations around the world. The sense that they had a hand in, in, in the policy making and the implementations of the Nixon Doctrine. I think sometimes these nations had a greater, an actual greater say than others, but I think part of the idea was, you know, to, to, to make you know Vietnam, Vietnamese feel like they had a greater role in their own self defense. To make Europeans feel uh, that Germans were more involved in the offset and could play a greater role in trade and, and economic and monetary relations. Uh, to make regional uh, pillars, you know, like the Shah and Iran, I think to to establish, you know, partners, you know, strategic partners, and not just sort of puppets. I think there was, you know, while, while Nixon, I think, and Kissinger wanted to continue to call most of the shots, I think there was this concerted effort to make our allies feel like they had
0: a say in, in the policy that resulted. Greg, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of the Vietnam War?
1: Uh I- yeah, I do. From a from a larger perspective, though, I I think um, Luke hits on an important point here. And Kissinger himself says that you know we had to shift our foreign policy to new facts of life. And and I, to me, it's it's always an interesting thought exercise here, right? That that was this even possible five years ago? That here you have a president of the United States who's who's really um, articulating a fairly major shift where communist enemies can now be negotiating partners. That that's it's a pretty big deal in terms of um, a shift in, in American thinking in the Cold War. And I'm not so sure that the articulation of this doctrine would have been even possible five years before. Um, the only, I guess, pushback I might have from a Vietnamese perspective is that um, clearly from, from the Saigon perspective and those South Vietnamese that are fighting, they realize that they've been um, bearing a pretty heavy load in terms of this fight for um, South Vietnamese independence. Um, and, and there's always a bit of uh, tension, I think, between um, Washington and Saigon over the, um, the burden that um, the South Vietnamese are, um, are bearing in this fight. And, and the idea that um, you know, this doctrine will allow them to, to better participate in their own future, um, I think, may have rankled some in, in Saigon because they already felt that they were, were obviously... Um, sacrificing quite a bit to um, hopefully maintain their independence.
0: Roham, do you have any thoughts on this, um, especially from a from the perspective of, of the Shah in Iran?
4: Uh, well, I mean, we also have to remember that I think both Nixon and Kissinger had a, I would say, deeply pessimistic view of the possibility of democratic change in Uh, most of the third world. I mean, they really did not have an expectation that um, Iran or Iraq or uh, uh, these, you know, underdeveloped countries like that were were going to be able to be sort of recreated in any short term in America's image. So that in and of itself, I think, was a major change in the American view of the Cold War. it was a far more pragmatic, uh, realpolitik, realist approach um, to power and to dealing with, with these, with these uh, uh, developing countries. And so that um, encourages, I think, a point of view uh, where you look for uh, a particularly strong figure or character um, uh, to deal with, uh, a reliable partner. The question really boils down to how reliable are they? Um so uh, that and that was a view that became very, very heavily criticized, you know for, both from the left and the right in the United States uh after Watergate um, and towards the end of the of the 1970s. but it it also uh you know it, it was the premise upon which, in many ways, I think um, the Nixon doctrine uh, was built. It was a doctrine for stability at the end of the day, for maintaining the status quo. Um, in a time when in the late sixties and early seventies in a lot of places in the world, these societies, these developed, a lot of these societies in the Middle East or in Asia or Latin America are actually undergoing, uh, those, those states are undergoing profound stresses and challenges, um, uh, from their populations, particularly from young people. I mean, there's a sort of international counterculture movement, um, what, what I found particularly interesting in a lot of the conversations between Nixon and the Shah is that here you have two very, very different men from very, very different contexts and backgrounds, yet two men who have a very similar worldview and who really perceive uh, the same social forces and changes as the dangers you know that they have to confront. Um, and that, I think, is a product of you know, a global phenomenon in the late 60s and 70s that that leaders across the world were trying to uh, address.
0: On November 3rd, 1969, uh, three months after the, a little over three months after the uh, Guam Doctrine is pronounced, uh, Nixon gives his address to the nation on the Vietnam War. This is popularly known as the Silent Majority Speech. Uh, He distills his doctrine on three distinct uh, planks, Uh, but I want to play the audio clip, which I will do right now.
5: American troops were committed to Vietnam. A leader of another Asian country expressed this opinion to me when I was traveling in Asia as a private citizen. He said, when you are trying to assist another nation defend its freedom, U.S. policy should be to help them fight the war but not to fight the war for them. Well, in accordance with this wise counsel, I laid down in Guam three principles as guidelines for future American policy toward Asia. First, the United States will keep all of its treaty commitments. Second, we shall provide a shield if a nuclear power threatens the freedom of a nation allied with us or of a nation whose survival we consider vital to our security. Third, in cases involving other types of aggression, we shall furnish military and economic assistance when requested in accordance with our treaty commitments. But we shall look to the nation directly threatened to assume the primary responsibility of providing the manpower for its defense. After I announced this policy, I found that the leaders of the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, South Korea, other nations which might be threatened by communist aggression welcomed this new direction in American foreign policy. The defense of freedom is everybody's business, not just America's business. And it is particularly the responsibility of the people whose freedom is threatened. In the previous administration, we Americanized the war in Vietnam. In this administration, we are Vietnamizing the search for peace.
0: There are two ways to look at this. And Michael, I want to ask you this first. Um, Nixon says that um, we don't want to fight the war uh, for other the wars for other countries. But he also says the defense of freedom is everybody's uh, business. Is this US doctrine? Is this presidential doctrine? Is this an, touching kind of what, on what Ro- 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 Roham said? Is this a idealistic doctrine? Or is this more about uh, realpolitik?
3: Well, that 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 is a very good question. Um, I would have to say that, uh, from my perspective, it seems that that it is more of a realistic uh, perspective in the sense that um, we can't be everywhere at the same time, and we can't, um, as a nation, it it would be difficult to defend every nation if the people themselves are not willing to do so. Um, at the very least, cooperating in the effort is, is, is required, and to not have that would would be um, undoable for the most part. I think the interesting thing about this is is that we talk about aiding those nations in their defense, and one of the things that, of course we, we did not see was what you know what if the nations don't? uh, pull their weight by, by, by whatever definition we apply that to. And, um, I, I think that's, you know, how that would play out of something, of course we we won't be able to see and we could speculate on it, but, but there was an expectation that they would be involved in that. And so, and I, I think that is pretty, re- you know, a realistic approach. Um, the, it, it's one that, especially when you're trying to explain to the American people of, why we're doing what we're doing, which is, was a question that came up quite a bit um, it seems easier to explain than something along the lines of the domino theory um, which in a lot of ways seems to be uh, at least to some degree rejected by this approach because each you know each individual nation w- would be judged you know under the circumstances of itself and it and it, and it specifically does not say um everywhere, all the time, to the last man. And so um, I, I think it is much more of a realistic approach, and, and, it, and it's a flexible approach.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, this is the part of speech where I think Richard Nixon would have made a, a fine staff officer on David Petraeus' uh, staff during the surge, right? Because this is, this is the essence of, of, of modern counterinsurgency doctrine, right? That um, less of a footprint is more. Um, don't lead, assist. Um, this is the this is the concept behind assistance brigades in a in a counterinsurgency fight. Um, and so, um, in one sense, um, you know he's pre pre some of the. the doctrinal theory that we're operating on today um, in terms of our counterinsurgency approach. The other thing I think that's important here, too, is that um, he says both military and economic assistance. So what's clear here to me is that Nixon is thinking about these problems not simply from a military standpoint, but from a larger whole-of-government approach, that this is a political problem, it's a social problem, it's an economic problem, as well as a military problem. The issue here, clearly, though, I think, is that um, when he says that we're going to be the shield um, for those um, nations that are vital to our security, that's the crux, right? That by 1969 and into 1970, um, I think I can make a fairly strong argument that South Vietnam is becoming less important and less vital to American national security in the larger concept of how uh, Kissinger and Nixon are, are thinking about the Cold War. Um, and so the primary responsibility for Americans here is, is not to, um, uh, to simply aid and assist the South Vietnamese, but it's also withdrawn in a manner that maintains American credibility. So Nixon can refocus American foreign policy on these bigger ideas of reestablishing and rethinking about the relationships with China and the Soviet Union and, um, that's kind of the undercurrent of the, um, of the speech here that, that I think is important as well. And um, I'm not so sure that, too, um, welcomed the direction of, of this policy as much as, as Nixon, at least publicly, um, states. Clearly, I think both Kissinger and Nixon knew privately that, two that, had some serious issues with um, an approach that potentially was going to decrease American influence in the region and thus complicate um, South, Vietnam, South Vietnam's uh, fight against Hanoi.
0: Luke, to Greg's point about uh, the whole of government approach, um, do do you think do you think in its application the Nixon Doctrine um, and its foreign policy at large that there was a a whole of government approach in its um, in its dealings with its uh, partners?
2: Well, uh, you know, as articulated, you know, by this by the speech, you know, the, the clip he played, you know, I. I I think there's a whole nother dimension to this and it's really the re- the the relationship between domestic policy
0: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the
2: doctrine um, you know here if you if you can kind of re- imagine back to 1969 and not I think in 2019 terms you know Congress has come back you know in September in 69 the honeymoon is over uh, as a new president The honeymoon's over with Congress, um, controlled overwhelmingly by Democrats in both houses. The honeymoon's over with the press. He's had his first few tastes of foreign policy and international symmetry and earlier in the year, and he comes back and he's immediately, you know, really under pressure to articulate, you know, what does the Nixon Doctrine mean? What is your foreign policy? What's your plan to get out of Vietnam? I mean, all at once. You know, Congress wants answers and deserves answers uh, in order to, to fulfill its oversight role. And what Nixon does just two months later, on uh, November 3rd, is produce the best speech of his presidency, um, which we we normally focus on. You know, the silent majority and sort of these phrases become the uh, the 140 characters by which we remember the speech. But I think what we also the other dimension of this is Nixon saying what he needs to say for a domestic audience. I mean, this is a domestic audience that wants out of Vietnam. This is a domestic audience that has that determined that during the 1960s we can't have guns and butter, we've spent too much, that in LBJ's final months of his presidency um, we had a hard enough time just getting a small surtax passed, you know, to to improve the, the budget situation. I think this is a, a domestic uh, audience, certainly on the Hill, that's demanding answers and, and, and really wants to know. Um, so I think there's another. This is the other important element too of the Nixon Doctrine, is that I think it's it's also a fit for its time, uh, in terms of uh, domestic politics. You know, I think that Nixon understood this was this was probably going to be good politics, and this is what people wanted to hear, and it helped to 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 stave off some of his worst critics. You know, when he when he made that speech.
0: Luke had mentioned that the Nixon Doctrine was has been mentioned about six times on the White House taping system. Uh, Michael, in your thesis, uh, you, t- you talk about one particular tape where Nixon uh, mentions the Doctrine uh, on July 1st, 1971. Uh, Nixon says, quote, I would say the Nixon Doctrine, as you know, is aimed at simply providing aid for those who aid themselves. And here he's talking about Taiwan uh, vis-a-vis as its relationship. In its relationship to China, uh, just before Mm -hmm. uh, Kissinger goes on his uh, secret trip to China, how does in in this case how does how does the doctrine um, apply in you know say Taiwan, Southeast Asia, and, and the whole China Initiative at large?
3: Well, as you know, the 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 entire China situation at this time period is fairly new and fairly delicate. Uh, Taiwan, of course, is a major sticking point on that. Um, and President Nixon understands that it, it's a delicate issue uh, for China and and, and for, for Taiwan as well. And so in that conversation, they, they, they talk about that. And so they're having to be very careful that they mentioned about uh, holding off on sending Agnew and Laird. Um, to Taiwan at that time um, because of the difficulties of that situation. And just real quick, if I may, we were talking just a second ago about the the economic aspects of the Nixon Doctrine. And um, on November 2nd of 71, uh, President Nixon was having a conversation uh, with Bill Rogers and he talks about the absolute necessity of the economic assistance plan as part of the Nixon Doctrine. Um, Suggesting that yes, he understood that it was not merely a military issue, but certainly was an economic and foreign aid. Uh, there was a component of that that was was very necessary. In fact, he says that it it will not work without it. Uh, in reference to he says that in reference to Korea and, and 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 Thailand as well.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts on that? Whether uh, the role in foreign assistance and the application of the Nixon Doctrine, whether it works with or without it. The economic aspect, correct? I, I
1: think it's it's fundamental, um, and um, especially in Vietnam, where the American presence is built up in a, in a large sense, I would argue a, a false economy um, that it's crucial, and um, and this is tied into so many factors in Vietnam, in particular, uh, land reform and um, and uh, not just national identity, but local identity as it's tied to the land um, and food production. And, uh, you know, you've got this rice producing country that, that ultimately is importing in rice, which demonstrates the fragility of, of, uh, economies that are immersed in war. And, uh, and I don't, I, I would argue that there's, there's nothing really new here in in, in this particular sense. I think uh, most Americans realized very early on, even into the 1950s that, um, perhaps some even looking to South Korea that, that, um, for, South Vietnam to survive in the modern era, that it was going to have, a, um, have to have economic stability, if not become uh, an, a regional player from an economic standpoint for, um, for the state to exist.
0: Rome, I want to bring you in here to talk a little bit about uh, Iran and the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, the very same month that Nixon announces uh, the Guam Doctrine, uh, Kissinger orders National Security Memorandum, a uh, Study Memorandum 66. Um, and that question here is withdrawal, um, but it's not American withdrawal; it's British withdrawal from the Persian Gulf. Um, what were they thinking ultimately uh, about what to do um, for security in the Middle East, in in, in the in the Persian Gulf uh, region?
4: Well, they they really only had uh, two options. I mean, a variety of options were considered, uh, but most of them were not either politically or economically feasible. For example, it was not feasible really to consider a significant American military presence um, in the Persian Gulf uh, in the late 60s, early 70s because of Vietnam. Um, So they really get boiled down to two options. Uh, One was uh, to essentially continue with the policy of the Johnson administration which had been to try to uh, encourage a kind of balance of power in the Gulf between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the two largest uh, littoral uh, powers. This actually was an idea created by the British um, as their power waned in the region, um, and, the, and uh, the, the State Department under uh, LBJ essentially continued that policy. Um, and if it hadn't if it hadn't have been for the close relationship between nixon and the shah i think it's most likely that, that that policy would have continued but in effect they also considered the option of um embracing iran as the uh principal power in the region uh, a policy of um iranian primacy i i, I would call it um, and what that really boiled down to, in practical terms, uh, was arms sales. Uh, Iran was a country that had tremendous resources at its disposal uh, because of oil. Um, it had a large population, so there was no issue in terms of manpower, which, which was very different to, say, Saudi Arabia or any of the um, Arab states in the Persian Gulf uh, with small populations. And it was a country ruled by a man, Mohammad Reza Shah, who had huge ambitions uh, for restoring Iranian greatness and Iranian power. He he sort of he spoke in terms of a new great civilization for Iran. Um, And so, really, the question was whether this was all talk or whether the Shah could actually live up to these. Uh, ambitions. And it was essentially a win-win proposition for the Americans because unlike a lot of other countries that we've, do- we've talked about in terms of the Nixon doctrine, Iran was a country that from 1967 onwards was no longer considered a developing country by the United States um, and no longer received uh, foreign economic assistance. This was a country with significant resources that was uh, by the mid-1970s, the single largest customer of U.S. arms uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, So you're talking about billions of petrodollars that would flow back into the U.S. economy, would help the U.S. balance payments. Um, So it was a win-win proposition from their point of view. Uh, And it all rested on the assumption that, you know, the Shah was a stable ruler and that there was no uh, danger of him falling from power uh, and that was not just the view of Nixon and Kissinger that was the view of pretty much all observers of Iran not only in the United States but elsewhere even in the opposition to the Shah so for the for the decade or so that the Nixon doctrine was in operation in Iran prior to the Iranian Revolution it was from from the from Washington's perspective very successful but of course it all, fell apart, um, with the Iranian revolution.
0: You write something interesting, uh, in your book, um, after the Soviet summit uh, in May of 1972, um, Nixon, President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger go to, uh, Tehran and they talk, they have a private meeting with the Shah. Um, Nixon tells the Shah to understand the purpose of American foreign policy and to quote, protect me. What does he mean by this?
4: Well, I think first you have to, I mean, if you look at it from the Shah's perspective, uh, it's not just a matter of the Nixon doctrine. It's also, it's a matter also of superpower detente. And I think the fear of the Shah, and I suspect many other um, uh, American allies in the developing world, uh, the fear was that if there is going to be some kind of detente between the United States and the Soviet Union, and if they enter into negotiations with one another, that, that as part of whatever deal is struck at the superpower level, that they will be sold out by their American allies. That, you know, uh, for example, uh, reaching agreement on arms control might come at the cost of um, selling weapon systems uh, to, say, Iran. And so I think part of the purpose of that visit in 1972 was really to reassure the Shah that um, uh, detente did not mean any reduction in the American commitment to Iran's defense. Uh, And in fact, under the Nixon doctrine, um, the U.S. would express a willingness to provide any arms except for nuclear weapons. Um, that Iran needed in order to uh, protect uh, the interests of the United States and the free world um, in the Persian Gulf, which essentially meant uh, keeping in power the uh, pro-Western Gulf rulers um, and maintaining the free flow of oil uh, through, the, through the Straits of Hormuz, um, which is an issue uh, until today.
0: Greg, do you have any thoughts on the inverse relationship between detente and arms control, um, and the Nixon doctrine. Maybe
1: not so much as the balance or the, uh, relationship between, uh, detente and and arms control, but maybe I I think there's something important here about, uh, the balancing act, um, that a president has to make in terms of um, articulating a foreign policy where in this case, Nixon is trying to at least reduce some of the means of American commitments abroad and do so in a way that, that, um, doesn't leave him open to political attack. And, um, I I think Luke brought up a a really important point here about the domestic aspects of, um, of the Nixon doctrine and how important they were that, um, that it, it matters here that, that the anti-war movement is 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 still cresting um, inside the United States. And um, that dissent at home is, is very much part of political calculations. And it's unfortunate in one sense, I think, that you see, um, in, my, in my estimation, too many um, historians looking at this cynically, that, that Nixon and Kissinger are making these calculations because of the political home front. Well, of course they are. Any president makes calculations on their foreign policy based on uh, the context of domestic politics, the challenge I think here for for Nixon, whether it's through the, the articulation of his doctrine or more more generally the his um, objective of, of detente, is to do so in a way that doesn't open him to political attack, not just from the Democrats but from from hard um, hardcore hawkish Republicans as well, and the fact that he's able to. Um, Pull back a little bit in terms of uh, again the means of, of American commitment abroad, and still maintain support in his own party, if not more generally, for this policy. Of detente is is actually, I think, pretty impressive.
0: Luke, do you have any thoughts on the balancing act between detente and the application of the doctrine?
2: Well, I, I think uh, you know to to dovetail with what uh, um, what what Greg is saying. You know, I think. Through our whole discussion here, we're just seeing sort of how many moving parts mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. uh, to doctrine, yeah. and I think Nixon has a kind of general feel for, for what these are and, and what needs to be included, and um, and so I think it, it I think it makes it difficult. You know, here we are, um, almost fifty years later, uh, and as historians, we're we're sitting in archives and we're we're turning pages and we're we're listening to tapes and we're trying to piece this together. But I think really, you know, the, the only person that, 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 that he, who saw all the moving parts probably was, was President Nixon because, you know, not, not everything makes it to a record or, or to a tape. And so I think that's our, our challenge today is, as we look back and, and why we're still trying to figure this out is because it, it was complex. I mean, Nixon became president at a, at a, at a very tumultuous time domestically, uh, internationally. And I think he knew that not just were new policies needed, but, you know, you know, to harken back to his, uh, uh, whether it be his inaugural address and his acceptance speech in Miami the year before, you know, I think what Nixon really argued was for a new tone in politics. And I think you can say a new tone in policy. And so I think this, what also made this speech important of November 3rd was this was really one of the first times. I mean, you don't expect a president in their inaugural address to talk a lot about policy details. I mean, they're still kind of figure these things out for a few months. And so, I think it's one other thing that makes the November 3rd speech uh, important, as uh, not just for for what it is, but kind of that that first major address uh, following you know, the the articulation in Guam of what we now know as the Nixon Doctrine, is his, his, his chance to say. You know, I know a little bit more now, and and so you, know, you think about the number of audiences he's talking to. I mean, foreign leaders are listening to certain things in the speech. Um, Is critics on the right or on the left are hearing certain things? People at home in their living rooms are hearing certain things. And so, to me, it's it's just it's sort of fascinating and almost bewildering to think about all these different things that he that he has to balance. Um, and I, I think, you know, what makes this conversation so interesting is, is we each bring a different perspective to the conversation, um, that maybe we weren't totally aware of and, uh, to show just how complex it all is.
1: I think what complicates that too, Luke, don't you think is that, that it, the administration's preference for privileging decision-making among very few policymakers, right? So how much expertise can you truly have in issues related to arms control in Southeast Asia and India, Pakistan and China and Russia and Middle East, that as you're um, consolidating decision-making and, uh, and planning among very few, that, that, that makes that even more challenging, right?
2: Well, I, I think that's right. You know, um, you know, Nixon and Kissinger, it's often pointed out how much the, together they centralize policymaking, and I think sometimes the critics are right, uh, or at least ask the right questions whether they go too far. Mm-hmm. But I think here's, again, where the, the tapes also indicate in you know, sort of all the areas of policy that they're willing to concede and sort of push back to the departments. And I, I recall one tape where, um, I'm sure Michael and I had a good laugh about this at some point, where Nixon is complaining to Bob Haldeman, sort of the nominal keeper of his schedule, and directing traffic in and out of uh, both people and paper in the Oval Office. And Nixon was complaining somehow that the Colombian minister of mines got 20 minutes on his schedule and saying, you know, that's something for the State Department to worry about. You know, why why is this person in here? Um, and so I think the Nixon doctrine in another degree is also a kind of lesson in administration and management of the president's time that he's sort of making a statement about um, these are the issues that I'm going to focus on that need to be a focus of my presidency, but others can be handled more routinely elsewhere. I mean, he's sort of deciding uh, what the hot spots of the world are, are going to be. Uh, and having, li- you know, limited resources uh, and not, I think, often being one prone to micromanagement, although he does sometimes. I think this is also a sort of administrative statement about about the parts of the world that he's going to have time and he's going to have resources to focus on.
0: Luke, I want to focus a little bit more on the uh, Europe aspect of the doctrine. Um, in your book, Nixon in Europe, um, you talk about... Uh, an address that Nixon made to the North Atlantic Council on April 10th, 1969, three months before, uh, the doctrine is announced. He says the following quote for 20 years, we have provided for the military defense of Western Europe for 20 years. We have held political consultations. Now that Alliance needs a third dimension. He's talking here about a social dimension. Uh, but was Nixon trying to get away from the idea of collective security, um, in, in, especially in Europe?
2: Well I, you know, I, I think this is a point that that reasonable people can debate. Um, you know I argue in the book that that the speech, and this speech is given three, about three and a half months before what we now refer to as the Nixon doctrine was articulated. Um, yet you know, sort of all the all the ideas are there, just kind of without, without arrows pointing to them. Um, and so I make the argument in the book. That this is at least as applies to Europe, you know, Nixon. The way the Nixon Doctrine is applied to Europe, Western Europe, our allies, and to NATO, and our military forces stationed there, that Nixon is articulating or making a call for a kind of shift from collective defense to collective security. And I think in his mind, security. This is sort of a perfect thing to announce as we as we enter in the, into the Detente era. And that security isn't just about. Sort of you know people and bullets and and material. And, you know security is about um, pe- movements of people and pollution and crime and and urban planning. And I think what Nixon is trying to extend out is a kind of olive branch to the Eastern Bloc and say, you know, we have these challenges too in our societies. And ultimately, what this leads to is is within six months, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, creates you know who is who's running who's heading the uh, urban uh, urban affairs council in the, in the white house ultimately um a, a similar type of device is introduced into NATO and people are saying to nixon you know what does nato have to do with this uh that's not what nato's about and so nixon uses the speech as a tool to really reshape nato and introduce its first you know non really real non defense capability or focus and it's a, a pillar of NATO that, that uh, has lasted to the, today. It's been renamed once about 10 years ago. But this sort of non-defense pillar that, you know, even if we can't agree um, on talking about, you know, detente, you know, superpower, Cold War issues with the Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, we can get together and we can talk about how to rid our harbors of pollution and things like that where I think it'll be easier to find cooperation. And these types of discussions can become bridges to more strategic issues and so, as I say, um, you know, a lot of the ideas were all here, you know, a few months before. They're all present there uh, that ultimately become, I think, part of what the Nixon doctrine really is.
0: Michael, did something um, similar uh, exist on the Pacific side? In, in, his, in his remarks at Guam, Nixon says, uh, the United States' involvement in war so, so often has been tied to our Pacific policy or lack thereof. Do you see similarities in that?
3: Well, there was um, concerns in regards to Japan in the, in the Pacific um, and, the, and how the Nixon doctrine would, would impact that and the, the amount of assistance and aid and, and support that Japan received from the United States. And, and, and the feeling was, okay, if there's not enough, then they may shift uh, to the Russians as well. And so th- there was some concerns um, now as far as in the tapes in and, and, and regards to, um, say, uh, environmental issues and things like that, I didn't run across anything along those lines. But but there were certainly concerns uh, in the Pacific in regards to the overall scheme of things that that um, that everything would have to remain in balance because the idea uh, of the bipolar world was beginning to change, but it had not. Uh, totally disintegrated by this point.
0: Greg, do you have any additional thoughts on the idea of collective security and sort of a third, a social dimension to the doctrine and U.S. foreign policy during that time?
1: I think in the in the particular case of Vietnam, that that the, there is a belief. I, I believe that um, that there, the social component is is part and parcel of. Um, of this conflict, that if this ultimately is a war over national identity in in South Vietnam and in Vietnam more more broadly, um, that the social component has to be part of um, American policy and um, and in this case, I think what you see here is um, a sense that military superiority. Um, if it exists at all, depends on a complementary political atmosphere. Uh, And that atmosphere clearly contains a social component. Um, And so part of the process, I think, of applying the Nixon Doctrine to Vietnam is um, also acknowledging um, the competing political and social um, aspirations of the South Vietnamese as the United States is trying to withdraw at the same time leaving behind something that will be stable staple um, after American departure.
0: I'd like to ask you all one final question, and I'll start with you, Luke, and we'll, we'll work around. Um, ultimately, what is the legacy of the Nixon Doctrine? Does it work in Vietnam and elsewhere uh, in the world?
2: Well, I think the Nixon Doctrine, you know, thinking about sort of a, at a 30,000-foot altitude, I think r- really was about re-examining the, the relationship between the United States um, and the world. And I think for Americans at home, reassessing the relationship in a sense between the the government and the governed, I mean, I think it was really a kind of call for a conversation about what we want the United States to be in this next phase of uh, of history. Um, Nixon said that uh, he believed the world was, was the, the post war was now over. You know, we were entering a new sort of yet you know, unnamed uh, phase in history, kind of a latter part uh, of the Cold War. And so I think, you know, I, I look at the Nixon Doctrine as really being a time to stop, to reflect, to plan, uh, and really have a conversation about what should the role um, of the United States be. You know, in our in our in for Nixon's time in our recent history, we've been, I think, on the wrong side uh, and have been uh, sort of too isolationist. Maybe the '60s is the high tide of internationalism. Maybe we went too far. And so I think in the course of this recalibration, it's really about kind of you know what's what's the right uh, place between those two extremes. So I think that's that's really the lesson for me is that it was meant to be broad and it was really meant to have a very wide you know wide-ranging conversation which is probably the kind of conversation that we need to have you know periodically in the nation maybe at least once every once a generation if not more often and so i think that looking back that's that's really the thing that stands out the most to me about the nixon doctrine
0: greg
1: Um, I think for me, three things. The the first is that, um, at the end of the day, that this is an acceptance that there are limits to U.S. capabilities, if not U.S. power abroad, that um, the United States um, quite simply cannot do it all um, on the global stage. And I think with that is... uh, perhaps an understanding that there may be some conceptual flaws to a a global policy of containment, that um, over-committing to a local conflict um, may not advance your um, your own foreign policy. And I think in particular with Vietnam, it's it's, um, a way hopefully to to demonstrate to the world that you want to um, disengage and withdraw from this local conflict in, in a manner that maintains American credibility and, and its reputation intact. So um, you can focus on um, bigger muscle movements of uh, reconceptualizing larger cold war relationships. Michael.
3: Um, well, I would agree with Greg there that, that the Nixon doctrine does, um, is is a policy that takes the United States, and we do look at uh, the domino theory and recognize that the United States cannot be everywhere at the same time, nor does it necessarily need to be 100% um, in in charge of defending the world in every place at all times, and and so in that respect, it's 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 very important in in what it does. I think it also is interesting that that these policies, of course, presidents have four, sometimes eight years. Um, So even though a lot of them are grand in scope and design and can have long term lasting effects, some of the some of the sub parts of the policies will go on beyond uh, a president's two terms or one term. So they didn't shape things beyond that, but but they they morph and change as well, and they certainly can be reversed with it, with any election, which is one of the difficult aspects of um of u s foreign policy is how much can change even if it doesn't always do that and so the fact that we're talking about the Nixon doctrine all these years later um shows us a few things about it 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 shows how remarkable it was, uh, how much of a change it was. Uh, from previous plans, um, and we see how grand in scope and design it was, how radical the change it was in some respects, um, and, and, and how it we did stop and just look at the, the role of the United States in the world, what it could do, what it would do, uh, possibly what it should do or, or should not do, and... Uh, so I think it's a very interesting thing to study it's It's something that has practical applications that that certainly could still be used today, um, whether they are or not, is a different story, but could be and And so, I think it's a very important part of u s foreign policy history in, in, in the the sense that it is one of those transitions um, from earlier thinking to to a different line of thinking regarding foreign policy.
0: And, Roham, your, your reflections on the Nixon Doctrine.
3: Oh, well, I think it's, uh, first
4: of all, regardless of whatever you think of the Nixon Doctrine, just the, uh, the fact that the president uh, would really have such a vision for foreign policy uh, and be able to actually successfully carry it out is, is quite extraordinary um, on, a, on a global scale. Uh, that the... Uh, the idea that the United States would be able to choose which battlefields in the global Cold War it engages in and disengages from you know was a very ambitious, difficult uh notion uh, in the midst of uh, a, a global contest like the Cold War. And I think to that extent it it was a success. I mean, it it was a successful way of reestablishing American leadership uh, at a very, very difficult time uh, for the United States. But uh, if we look at the legacy of the Nixon doctrine in many regions, particularly in the third world, in the developing world, it's a mixed, uh, it's a very mixed uh, legacy and one that's still heavily contested uh, because at the end of the day um, by uh essentially farming out responsibility for regional security to local allies you are giving those local allies tremendous leverage and tremendous power tremendous influence over u.s foreign policy and we see a similar uh, phenomenon today with, with the uh, U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia, towards the UAE and the Persian Gulf, and the degree to which leaders in those states are able to exercise influence over um, uh, U.S. policy to the region, and, it, and it's a matter of debate uh, whether that really serves uh, uh, U.S. interests. Um, so it's I think it's a it's it's a mixed uh, legacy, but you can't contest the scale of the ambition.
0: The topic of today's discussion was the Nixon Doctrine at 50. Our guests are Rohan Alvandi, Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and a Visiting Associate Professor of History at Columbia University, Michael Cotton, Assistant Professor of History at Temple College in Texas, Gregory Daddis, Associate Professor of History and Director of Chapman University's War and Society Program, and Luke Nickter, Professor of History at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Thank you all for joining us.
3: Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Please check back for future podcasts at NixonFoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Abroydus and your Belinda.